Hello and welcome to Cabana Chats, a podcast about writing and community brought to you by The Resort, an international community of writers based in Queens, New York City. I'm your host, Catherine Lasoda. This is a very special episode of Cabana Chats. It is a recording of a live event that we had at the end of September 2021 with the wonderful Lee Stein. Even sharing one, a poem with one friend of mine, that's satisfying. Like, it doesn't have to be published. If one friend of mine opens the email with the poem, like, that's it. I'm happy the rest of the day, you know. Lee Stein was co-founder and executive director of Out of the Binders BinderCon, a feminist literary nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender variant writers. She's also the author of the memoir Land of Enchantment, the poetry collection Dispatch from the Future, and the novel The Fallback Plan. What's really fascinating is that Lee has also published two books during the pandemic. The critically acclaimed satirical novel Self-Care that was published in June 2020, and more recently, the poetry collection What to Miss When, which was not only published during the pandemic, it was conceived, written, and sold during the pandemic as well. So we had a special live event that was an official bookend event of the 2021 Brooklyn Book Festival. And in the first half of this episode, I'm in conversation with Lee about how much community was involved in the process of putting her book What to Miss When out into the world. Lee even gets us started with a great prompt for all of you writers out there. In the second half, we bring on three members of our Cabana Club membership program to be in conversation with Lee. I hope you enjoy this very special live episode event of Cabana Chats. Lee, as we get started, I would love to hear a little bit about how you are, where you are, what you're doing, who are you outside of writing, And can't wait to hear the prompt you have for everybody. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I love this community and I'm so happy for the invitation, Catherine. Um, It's hard to think about my life outside of writing. I lead a very writing-centric life. Um, But I live in Connecticut. I live just outside the city in the suburbs. And I'm currently re-watching The Sopranos before I see the prequel. And a fun fact is that I got married this summer. Um, and I was so lucky. We were so lucky with our date. It was at the end of June, right before the Delta surge in that little window of time where you're like, things are going to get better. Um, so we were so blessed and lucky to have a beautiful wedding. And, um, I'm happy to be here tonight. My poetry editor, Sarah Lynn Rogers is here tonight. And I can talk a little bit more about how she acquired this poetry collection because it's a very interesting and unique story. Oh, and the prompt. So the prompt in my Sunday newsletter, some of you here tonight, I don't get my Sunday newsletter. I was talking about how much I've built connection and community on the internet. And I've been doing this since I was 13 years old in the late 90s. Um, and I even met someone recently in the Zoom chat of another writer's event. I made a new friend in a Zoom chat. So I would love if some people made Zoom friends tonight in the chat. So to kick us off, I would love if everyone could introduce themselves by saying, I write at the intersection of X and Y. That's your prompt. Because there might be someone in the chat who has a similar sensibility or who reads your little pitch and goes, oh my gosh, I want to know more about that. So I will go first and I'll put in the chat, I write at the intersection of the internet and feminism. Yes, I love this prompt. And I love the prompt also makes me think of how terrific Lee has been with our classes here at the resort and classes she teaches um, all over really about conceptualizing a book. 
um, a book proposal conceptualizing your book. And I'm just thinking about how precise you are about I write at the intersection of X and Y. It's a good exercise to even just think about what you write. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, we are here to celebrate what to miss when. Do, do, do. Here I am holding it up for anyone who's in attendance watching poems by Lee Stein. And Lee, could you just kick us off by selecting a poem from the book to read first? Maybe tell us a bit about it. Yes, I'm going to read a poem called Tiger King. Now, I wrote this book in six months um, in the first phase of the pandemic. I started it in March 2020. I finished it in September 2020. And I was writing a lot about these cultural or internet milestones that those of us with a work from home pandemic lifestyle were observing in real time in the news and on Twitter. And this poem, I almost, I wasn't even sure if I was going to include it in the book because it was such a minor event. I thought no one's even going to remember this event happening, but I ended up being like a very, a lot of people really like this poem because it captures uh, the zeitgeist. So the event that's inspired this poem is the New Yorker put out a special issue where they had famous writers talking about their lives during COVID. And Lori Moore, famed short story writer, said that she found President Trump's voice reassuring. And for like four hours on Twitter, everyone was mad at Lori Moore and like trying to cancel Lori Moore. And I just thought like, we're so bored. This is like a major event in our lives. And so this is the inspiration for this poem. It's called Tiger King. The caged tigers are hungry for whatever you have. Walmart meat past its expiration date. A sickly calf. Short story master, Lori Moore. She was asking for it. When she confessed, his voice soothes her like she's his pet. The caged tigers don't care about your contributions to arts and letters. That you sit in a distinguished chair. You built on the grounds of your personal exotic animal park. They just want to eat. It's been weeks since anyone threw a juicy thought crime into their pen. One of the older tigers, who's been too busy birthing cubs to keep up with her New Yorker subscription, might need a younger tiger to explain how we're starving for someone to blame for our broken systems. We'd cancel a baby if it gave us five seconds of relief. In one story, Lori Moore offers a cure for depression. Stop drinking, stop smoking, stop eating sugar, cut out caffeine. Do this for three days, she writes. Then start everything back up again. Bam. Mm. Applause, applause, applause. <laughs> and thank you for reading that. Excellent reader of your own poetry as well, Lee. Um, yes. And I love how you introduced that saying, you know, here is this, is this just a blip in time, the Tiger King, I remember near the beginning of the pandemic, how big that was for so many people. And now it seems forever ago. Yeah. Did so much right? has happened since yeah. Tiger King. Yeah. Did, um, did writing, did writing these poems seem, uh, was it an opportunity for you to, to capture these poems? Do you think that, that they would have been fleeting for you as well if you hadn't written about them? Yeah, I've almost described this collection as, as a diary, not a memoir, because I, you know, I feel like a med memoir is so retrospective. Looking back, a memoir is so reflective. And this was like a diary. Like I would be cooking dinner. I would have a line of a poem. The next morning I would write the poem. So it was just documenting in real time and just collecting all this material around me. And I've always been someone who thinks the internet is just as real as anything else. So I take my material from TV, from the internet, from the news. Um, from relationships, like the, the world is my oyster. So I don't, I don't consider the internet like not, not fair game for material for poetry. Yeah, and totally. Um, 
you were saying that you would a line would come to you that you'd write down. I wonder, was there something that was, and maybe you an, you answered that question a little bit by saying that. But if, is what is there something that drew you to poetry in particular over this past year as something to write, and why? So I started off as a poet, as a teenage girl. Poetry was my first love. Like I remember at at a thrift store getting Ariel by Sylvia Plath, a used copy, and it like blowing my mind and like opening my world. Um, so I just love great poetry. It came very natural to me as my first love. I published my first book of poetry in 2012, Dispatch from the Future. Then for 10 years, I didn't write poetry. And I thought I had just lost it. Like I'd lost the ability to write poetry. I thought I had ruined my brain. I thought I was a prose writer now. I just flipped the switch and it was over for me. And then in early 2020, two weeks before my state of Connecticut went into lockdown, I was frustrated with how much wine I was drinking. And so I decided to do a 30-day alcohol-free experiment. This is very self-care of me to do a 30-day alcohol-free experiment. But I was like, whatever, I can do it for 30 days. Like, it's not the rest of my life. And 11 days later, I wrote a poem for the first time in 10 years. And the poems just like, it was like a miracle. I just started receiving poetry. So it was like the perfect con conditions of my new sobriety, the isolation of lockdown. They were all colliding. But I also think, you know, for writers, a lot of us have this idea, like, if I could just... Like in six weeks from now, when I have time to write, like when I have my perfect writing day that I'm going to, you know, that always in the future, uh, somewhere down the road. But when I was writing poems every day, they, it was like I was refilling the, I was like refilling the pool of inspiration every day because it was fresh in my head all the time. I wasn't taking time away from it. It was just my project. And so in March, I started writing the poems. My friend Chelsea Hodson, um, who's an essayist, she posted on Twitter, she was doing an accountability program. I emailed her and I said, is it weird if I do this? Because we're friends, I didn't want to make it weird for her. She's like, oh, it's not weird at all. You should totally sign up. So I signed up to have like another form of accountability to keep writing the poems. And so I said, I'm going to send you five poems every week. So every Monday I would send Chelsea five poems. I was sending them to my agent. Um, and my agent was like, I think you're writing a book and we should sell the book. And I was like, I had mixed feelings about it at first because I was like, but it's so new. Like, can it just be my project? But my agent was like, <laughs> so I wrote a book proposal and within one or two months, we'd sold the whole book. And then I had it, it was due September 1st and I wrote the whole thing. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, there you go. You, were, you started writing poetry and I was going to ask, when did you know that this was becoming a book? But it sounded like people outside of you were, were saying, I think you're writing a book here. And that that right there points to the importance of community, I would say, right? And and it's kind of steering, helping to steer your ship a little bit. And you, you resisted that at first, you said. What turned your mind, changed your mind? Well, I mean, to me, like poetry for me is such about, is, is so about community. It's like even sharing one, a poem with one friend of mine, that's satisfying. Like it doesn't have to be published. If one friend of mine opens the email with the poem, like that's it. I'm happy the rest of the day, you know. It's it's such a small unit of something that you can share. It's so much easier to share a poem than like, hey, I just wrote a chapter of my novel today, you know, and then they don't open the email and you're like, it sucks, doesn't it? You know, there's so much agony. So poetry for me has always been about sharing. I don't write poems for myself. I can like think of like, I can think of specific friends that would make me so happy to read my poems. I know exactly who they are. I get so much instant gratification from sharing my poems with them. And my agent was one of those people because she was just, I mean, all of publishing, they were like, you know, they were in lockdown with all of us. They're on their computers all day. I was sending them to my book editor at Penguin for self-care. And she was like, we're sharing these in the Penguin company Slack. It's like keeping us going, keep sending the poems. 
So that was giving me the sense that they were like reaching people. And I was describing something that was like a universal experience, at least not a universal experience, an experience in a certain um, class of workers. Um, so, yeah. When she said this is a book, I mean, I was like resistant, but I was also scared. But for me, like if I'm a little bit scared, it's a good sign. If I'm like, oh, that sounds like really big. I don't know if I can do it. Then I do it. So that's that was a good thing to make it a book. And I had a concept because this is the thing, too, is most poets, they write all these poems. They write dozens of poems. They write 100 poems. And then they have to ask themselves, how is this a book? Where I did the opposite, where I had the concept for the book, that this would be a poetry collection written during and about the coronavirus pandemic. And the original title I had for it was Viral Experience. Mm. But as I started writing it, I was like, this really isn't about the virus. Like, I'm safe. Everyone in my family is safe. Like, I'm not, like, looking in a hospital. Um, so, um, What to Miss When, Chelsea Hodson found the title. That was one of the poems. And she's like, I think this is the book title. So, again, this is, like, community. It's like having people to bounce your ideas off of who can see things that you can't see. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That's a, that's great. I always love hearing the stories of titles and and and. It's a great one. And it's a great cover too. I'm just going to roll it up again for anyone who's who's watching. It's a, I, could you, can you tell us a little bit about how this cover came to be? Or though I should back up and ask first, how did this collection end up with Soft Skull? Can you talk about oh, that? So, yeah. So first, because my editor at Penguin was like, you know, we, I freaking love these poems. That's who we tried first. And they passed. I think it just wasn't like a big enough book for Penguin, which I understand. Um, but then I knew that Sarah Lynn Rogers was at Penguin, I'm sorry, at Soft Skull Press. And I knew Sarah, Sarah had come to BinderCon in like 2016 or 2017 in LA. That's how I met Sarah first. I knew she had read all of my books. Sarah has come to many of my events. She's taken classes with me. Like she's been in my life for a long time. And I knew she was at Soft Skull. And so I said to Erin, why don't you send it to Sarah? And so it was like the perfect match. And this happened also with my, with my memoir. The editor that acquired my memoir was a college classmate of mine after 17 other people had rejected it. And for my novel, Self-Care, my editor, Margot, has been, had been following my work since my poetry collection in 2012. She tried, tried to acquire my memoir. She couldn't. And then she acquired my novel. So it's like you meet all these people in your network and you might not know for years how you're going to be able to work together, right? But they're still in your network and you're still connected to each other. And you just don't know, you know, what the future will bring. So Sarah was the perfect editor. She's, she's, a, she's a poet herself. She's just like amazing at attention to detail. Her edits made the collection so much stronger and so much better. And she was really hands-on. She was someone I could, you know, have conversations with. Like, should we cut this? Should we keep this? She would suggest something. And I'd be like, no, I feel really strongly the other way. And she understood. And so it was a, a real collaboration um, for a book that came together very quickly. And I was also worried by the time it comes out in August 2021, will we even be talking about the pandemic? Oh, my and, goodness. And here we are. Will we ever? <laughs> um, what a concern to have. I mean, I really I feel for all of the writers who have been publishing books during this very extended time of uh, trying to connect with readers in a whole new way. And you actually self-care actually came out. What was the date of the publication for self-care? June 30th. So now I've launched now two books in the pandemic. Wow. Wow. Have you learned things about launching books during a pandemic that you think you will continue into um, hopefully lesser pandemic times? Um, well, I think I'm like uniquely well positioned for this since I'm so online. 
it's, it comes very naturally for me to be online and be on social media. So it's not, um, it's not a struggle. With the poetry book, I've really doubled down on Instagram. I find like that's where a lot of poetry fans are. So I've just spent more time there on Instagram. And the other thing I've tried to do is I've tried to reach people in tangible ways. I did like a signed book plate pre-order campaign where I signed little stickers and customized them and put them in the mail to people. Um, for self-care, I did a whole pre-launch campaign where I, I made a zine about the internet and we photocopied it and we mailed the zine out to people. Um, in the pandemic, at the very beginning, Penguin said, you know, like, we can't, like, we're not in the office. We can't mail books. And I was like, you can't mail books. And they're like, we're just going to send ebooks out. And I was like, you can't send ebooks. Like, like, this has to be on Instagram. Like, this has to be in the bathtub. And so my editor was like, I'm going to mail you a box. Mm-hmm. And so she somehow got me like 50 copies. And I just went to the post office every week and mailed books to influencers myself and just spent all my own money on it because it was so important to me that the people have the book. So that kind of thing, you know, a lot of people get disappointed in their publishers that their publishers don't do more. And I guess my attitude is just like, I don't know, I'd rather just do the work than complain later that no one else did the work. You know, like I'd rather just go above and beyond. I just did an event in Chicago that was going to be on Zoom and I was like, I'm buying buying a plane ticket. Like, let's just have the event. Let's just do it. And it was the first event this bookstore had had in person. Wow. Um, we did it. Masked, 12 of us in a circle. It was great. It That's was so different than being special. on Zoom. It was so different. Yeah. You can smell people. <laughs> um, I do want to say something that you said a, a, a while back there that I just want to make sure we highlight. All these people who came into play with Sarah and people that you'd known for a long time as part of getting this book out in the world. This book was written quickly, but I, I still want people to remember that um, having a book come out in the world, even if it's written quickly, can be years of relationship building, right? And and learning how to publicize and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah. Yeah, like I have spreadsheets, like tracking my contacts. I know this sounds creepy, but it's like a Rolodex, right? Like it's like I have these spreadsheets and, um, you know, people I've kept in touch with. And so I don't forget anybody. And if there's someone I haven't talked to in a while, I'll rekindle the connection but because I know like 12 months from now, I'm going to have to ask them for something. So I really try to keep up with my relationships and keep track of those relationships. You know, I don't think it's creepy at all. We just had a Cabana Chats podcast episode come out and their, their guest on that, that episode was talking about her jobs where she learned how to use spreadsheets very well, unrelated to writing, but just like in her schooling where she had used spreadsheets for certain things. I'm like, wow. What a great skill to build for your writing career, right? Like totally spreadsheets for everything, not just tracking your submissions, but your contacts with people and, and all of that. Um, save the save the stuff in your brain for the creative stuff and then then put those names down in the spreadsheet so you can just come back to it later mm-hmm. and not have to retain it all, right? Um, so we went to Soft Skull. I just I do want to ask you really quickly, can you tell us a little bit about the cover of the book? Yes, I'd love to tell you about the cover of the book. So Some of you might know that when you have a book coming out, your publisher sends you an author questionnaire that you have to fill out. And it's like, what organizations are you connected to? What influencers do you know? Who could blurb this? How else are you going to sell this? Um, And then at the end, it doesn't always ask this, but the soft skull one did. It said, what do you picture for the cover? Which is like a really hard question for me because I'm not visual at all. I have no graphic design skill. I cannot draw a cat, like really bad. And so I typed something where I was like, I was like, it's like the internet. I was like, it's like screens. Like I'm thinking like screens, like layers of different screens. That's what I said. 
And this is what they came back with, which is like so perfect because it's the camp, the Decameron. So the Decameron, this 14th century Italian plague text, became a designing principle for the collection. And what I didn't know before the pandemic is that only the beginning, the intro to the Decameron is about the plague. The rest of the book is about these like hot singles who flee to the countryside to escape the plague and like drink a lot of wine and tell each other sexy stories. Mm-hmm. And so the idea for this poetry collection is like, you know, instead of that, it's just like a bunch of millennials drinking mocktails, streaming Tiger King in their homes while, you know, the city is a, is a dark place of contagion and, and death. So this is a Waterhouse painting of the Decameron from 1916, something like that. And so what they did with the screen, the screens, I just love. And like this final photo, I mean, this is so like me on Zoom. It's just like so, it's just so perfect. And I love inside, they used it as the end paper. It's just, it's gorgeous. I love, I love the design. And this is Michael Salu, I think, from House of Thought is the art director. Wow. I can tell, and it is gorgeous. And I can tell from the way that you're talking about and handling the book and showing us the inside, how important that like tactile, tactile, actual book coming in the mail to you. I get that. I feel that, especially when we've been so much on screens. Um, I I do want to make sure that we get to some amazing questions and also some other special guests we have here tonight. But right now what we're going to do, because um, this is about community building and Lee has been such a terrific member of our resort community and teaching classes for the resort is we have brought on three wonderful members of the resort of our cabana club who are going to come on and ask a question each of Lee. They've taken her classes at the resort. Um, They are curious about things that she has to say and would like to ask some questions. And I'm going to introduce everyone here um, one by one. And then, um, and we'll, we'll move on to the second half here. Let's see. Thank you, Liam. Thanks, everyone. And, and if you do have questions, please do put them in the chat. We'll try to get to them at the end of the hour. So um, the first writer here that I'm going to introduce from our resort community is Sarita Gonzalez. And Sarita Gonzalez is a writer who lives in Forest Hills, Queens. Yay, Queens! And is the manager of Good Ancestor Book Club, an international book club led by Laila Afsad and that focuses on BIPOC authors. She will be opening Sunflower Books in Forest Hills in early 2022, which is super exciting. And I'm going to pass it briefly to Sarita to ask her just to share a little bit about what community has meant for her over the course of the pandemic and her writing process. And um, Sarita, take it away. Uh, thanks for having us. Um, I'm very excited and a big fan of Lee. So thank you. Um, I can't wait to re- read your poetry. Um, yeah, no, community and the resort honestly has been my saving grace during this pandemic. Um, we have uh, amazing classes that are very generative. And also just, we have this weekly coffee, you know, meetup every Wednesday and we see baby Bruno, one of the, you know, our resort members kid. And it's just been my saving grace in this pandemic and, and, and an inspirational, the fact that, you know, um, everyone is doing so well and, and writing, like, you know, not everyone is having writer's block as they're making it out to be on social media. Um, it's definitely been a rewarding experience for me. I, for my question for Lee though, is like, what, has inspired you during just the pandemic that made you want to write instantly? What, you know, piece on Twitter thread or an essay or a book that you just put down and the second you like close it, you're like, I'm going to write right now. 
I'm curious what that was for you. Oh, wow. That's such a good question. You know, what you said also, I want to be sure not to forget to say that while I wrote this, I have this online accountability group. I think there's there's five other women in me and we call ourselves KIPP, which is keep it positive. So we try to keep it positive. And we were using the Slack group just like as accountability. And we use the Pomodoro method, which you can Google later if you don't know what that is. But we'd like put little tomatoes when we write and we call it like, we're like, we're like, I'm in the garden today. We put our little tomatoes. And then when the pandemic happened, we started doing weekly Zooms. And again, it was like a saving grace for me. Um, And so they followed me, you know, all through writing this book. I followed them through various different things, highs and lows, but we still meet. Um, So now it's been, I don't know, it's been 18 months now that we've been meeting and it's like, it's, it's super great. So if any of you, you know, you have a friend and that friend has a friend and that has a friend has a friend, like you can create a little group to meet on your own. Um, So I find the thing that gets me to write is something that irritates me. Like the rock in my shoe gets me to write. And and one of the things Sarah, my book editor and I worked on is in the 10 year period when I was not writing poetry, I was learning to write opinion pieces. So I was developing that skill. And so Sarah would say about some of the poems, she was like, this poem reads like an opinion piece. It was too argumentative. And so she tried to help me kind of get into that more subtle, imaginative, dreamlike, surreal space for some of the poems. But there's one poem in the collection called Heretic, which was about just, I just had this like ache during the pandemic for like something deeper. Like the internet wasn't enough. I found myself like missing religion, missing religious faith, you know, looking at all the things that had kind of replaced religious faith for secular millennials. Like politics had become a kind of religion. Feminism had become a kind of religion. Um, we just replaced religious faith with, with other things. And that was really irritating me. So I ended up writing this poem. The ending was too didactic. Sarah helped me with the ending. I wrote that last year. And then like six months later, I tweeted something similar about Glennon Doyle and a New York Times editor asked me to write an op-ed. So that was an example of something that was a poem, but the idea was still churning around in my head and I had more to say about it. And I wrote an op-ed. So if you're angry or irritated or pissed off about something, I would say lean into that. Ask yourself why you feel that way and lean in. Razor's feeling it right now. <laughs> Razor is totally feeling it because we're going we're to go to her next because I know she has a question related to what you just said. So we're going to get into that. Um, uh, thank you, Sarita, so much for that question. And we have to hear more about Sunflower Books at some point because that's exciting. Kudos, um, Sarita. Yes, indeed. And thank you for the great question. So Rachel Maria Alcacid is writing a memoir about a working class Filipino immigrant family struggling with their daughter, daughter's mental illness and psychiatric hospital stay in 1980s Houston, Texas. She's the organizer of the North Bronx Writers Group and recipient of the 2021 City Artist Corps grant from NYFA and the NYC Department of Cultural Affairs. Way to go, Rachel. Um, so excited to have you here. I wonder if we could get you off of mute and you can share with us a little bit about what community has meant to you over this past now 18 months plus of a pandemic. Thank you, Catherine. Um, so writing community for me, and I only discovered this in the last uh, three years, maybe, um, is like the joy of being heard and understood as a writer by other writers. And it's beyond just engaging in craft or draft 
with uh, swapping um, or sharing rejection. It's like the sincere giving and receiving um, that can really put a dent in that anxiety doubt combo that is always like swirling. Um, so that's what writing community. Um, and I definitely have gotten that from the resort and virtually through like Thousand Words of Summer and Lydia Yuknovich's community. Um, so yeah. And then my question for you, Lee, because I took your class years ago at Catapult, and then I, the next time I saw your name was in the New York Times op-ed piece, <laughs> and I was um, floored because I have some friends who are fanatical for these, um, what oh, you call the insta-evangelists, and I thought, oh my gosh, you wrote something that probably some of these fanaticals would be really defensive and angry about. And I guess I just want to know, like, did you have, because uh, I encounter fears when thinking about writing about something that irritates me. And did you have any anxiety about that or nervousness? Good question. I did not have anxiety or nervousness, but I was really surprised by the reception to it. So I thought like with, when I write about like my piece last summer that went viral about the girl boss, I published it. Everyone was like, oh my God, you put your finger on something I couldn't explain. Like, I feel so sweet. And I thought that's what would happen with this. I thought people would be like, oh my God, you nailed it. You're right. Millennials are making all this other stuff their religion, but it's not the same as religion. It's like, no one said that. Instead, all across this, the country, like pastors were delivering sermons about my piece. It, it hit the religious community. That's who it hit. And I got all these invitations to go to church. Some of them were very, very kind. And some of them were very aggressive and dogmatic. Um, and I made some new Jewish friends thanks to the piece. So the religious community read my op-ed and they're like, oh my God, she's explaining why everyone has left and what they've replaced church with. So that's what was interesting to them. Um, Glennon Doyle, um, then I got an email from someone at the Kara Swisher podcast. She's the big tech podcast, the New York Times. And, and they said, Kara Swisher's interviewing Glennon Doyle. Can we do a pre-interview with you before she talks to Glennon? So I did the pre-interview and, and Kara went hard on Glennon and Glennon said that my piece was misogynistic. And I was just like, wow, that's just, it's just like, to me, this is just like right out of self-care. Like I wasn't being mean to Glennon. I was talking about her work. But her best defense is to call me a name. Um, I actually think like if Lennon and I had coffee, like I think we would like find common ground because I think she's just as burned out by what she has to do on social media as we all are. I, I think it's it's there's dark sides that she sees, too. Um, but I'm just I'm just fascinated by observing. I mean, this is something else that like, you know, before the pandemic, I used to love I, I love eavesdropping. I love eavesdropping in public, like working in a public place and like overhearing something that you can use later, you know, but you couldn't do that. And so I eavesdrop on the Internet. I eavesdrop on Instagram. I eavesdrop on Twitter. It's where I get a lot of my material. I listen to how, you know, different people talk to one another. Um, and I'm curious. That was awesome. Thank you, Rachel, for that great question. And Lee, you said, you know, I think of Glenn and Doyle and I could sit down and have coffee. We could like work this out face to face. We can't be face to face so much right now. So how do we how do we prevent misunderstandings through the digital interface? Give us guidance. 
how do we do this? Do we not? Well, I mean, the conversations I'm having with people one-on-one are so different than the conversations I have. Like before I tweet something publicly, I really think like, is this for public Twitter or is this like a DM for my friend? You know, I have to really think um, before I speak. Think before you speak. Your parents taught you this. This kid. <laughs> um, so, and I do think like, it's another reason why people listen to podcasts. I think we're hungry for these deeper, richer conversations where people aren't jumping to the worst bad faith interpretation of something someone says. There's, Twitter is so short. So in a podcast conversation, you can hear people argue with each other but while remaining friends. I think that's really healthy and useful. And it's not something that we see on Twitter. Yes, yes. Um, being an argumentative person by nature, which some folks here might not know about me, I appreciate that. I like to argue with my friends. I like to argue with my spouse and it's all in love. Um, I see some good questions coming through and I went, uh, and if anyone else has more questions coming through through the Q and A, we have one more member of the resort here coming up though. Real quick. I do want to say, because Sarita mentioned that we had a, a pandemic baby born at the resort membership during this past year. He's in attendance. I just saw in the chat, Bruno the baby is is listening in. Um, Ian is sitting there with Bruno the baby. So that Yay, warms Bruno. my heart. <laughs> um, so then finally here, we have the wonderful Stephanie Jimenez, um, also in Queens, love Queens. Stephanie Jimenez is the author of the novel They Could Have Named Her Anything, which was published by Little A in 2019. Her writing has appeared in several outlets, including the New York Times, The Guardian, and Joyland. And you can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Estef Says, which is E-S-T-E-F-S-A-Y-S. Stephanie, thank you for being here. Um, I would love to hear from you a little bit about what community has meant to you and your writing over the past year and a half of this wonderful, strange time together. Welcome. Hi, yeah, thank you so much for welcoming me here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like many people here um, on the chat and panelists have found community at the resort, um, have found it to be a really invaluable resource. Um, and it is amazing to just be able to connect with writers and in many ways expand my writing circle because before, you know, I was really, I, I tended to meet up with my, you know, my writing group members in person, never thought of using Zoom as a tool to actually expand that circle. Um, and so I, I connected with a lot of new people um, and reconnected with a lot of writers that I knew who had like dispersed around the country. And so, you know, looking back, I'm, I'm grateful for the reminder, right, that we have this technology to connect with people. Um, and yeah, and I would say, so So I, I have a question that relates to something you said earlier, Lee, when we were doing introductions and Catherine asked you to describe yourself, you know, outside of your writer life. Um, and this is something that I think about a lot in terms of like, what does it mean for a writer to lead a writer's life? Um, and Lee, what does it mean to you? And how do you stay focused and energized? And, you know, this is something I think about because I think, you know, I personally have like a kind of conception of like what it would mean to like actually, you know, make writing the most central thing to my life um, and how I would actually, you know, do that practically and like go about, you know, making writing central. So I guess in, in your own writing journey, like how have you done that and what would you say um, led you to that point? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, 
There are no shortcuts. I've I've deliberately made choices to make writing the center of my life. I haven't had a full-time job since 2008. I, which means I've been a gig freelancer. So sometimes I'm working many jobs at once. Sometimes I'm working seven days a week, um, but I'll do anything to avoid having a nine to five because that just did not suit my, I found it so deadly to work a, a nine to five. I'd rather work even more hours, but I feel like I'm in control of those hours. Um, I don't have kids. That's another challenge, especially women writers. I know by my mom friends during the pandemic, it has been rough. It has been a burden on them. Um, some of them have changed or changed jobs or left the workforce because of the burden of childcare. So that's a, another deliberate choice I made. Um, when I was a little girl, all I wanted to do was to be left alone at home to like make projects on the floor of my bedroom. That's all I wanted. And like, as an adult, I've achieved that. That's, I've achieved the dream. I'm home alone, except I'm not because now my my husband works from home, which has been, an, that's been a big adjustment. That's been a big change to my routine because I was used to being alone at home all day. But it's like, I've arranged my life so I can spend hours by myself thinking. And this is like the lifestyle of like, you know, the white men of yore that, <laughs> that wrote all those classic books, you know? So I, I've just, that's what I've tried to do. But I think, um, you know, not not everyone. I mean, my my path. Everyone's path is their own path. No one can replicate the path that I've chosen for myself. But once you get really clear on what your priority is, it helps you say no to other things. So once you say like this fall is going to be about finishing the manuscript, then re requests come in for your time. You know, can you be on this committee? Can you help me out with this extra thing? Can you clean the house? It's like no, 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 no. We're going to have a messy house. <laughs> And I'm not doing that thing because this fall is about my manuscript. And I've also, I work as a book coach and like, I'll talk to my clients too. And I'll say, have a family meeting and say to your family, this is, this is important to me and I need to do this. And in order to do this, I'm going to need everyone's support. And so make everyone feel like they're involved in this thing that's important to you. Then you don't have to feel so alone in it. I was just venting to my husband. A couple of, I really want to write my next novel and I have not found the time to do that. And I'm frustrated with myself because I'm trying to advise myself like I'm my own coach. So I was venting to my husband about it. And he's like, why don't you just go away somewhere for a few days? And I was like, that was very nice of you to say that. Because <laughs> um, it didn't feel like I could give myself permission to do that. But because he suggested it, it made it, um, you know, like he's nicer to me than I am to myself sometimes. Man, we all need those people around us who are nicer to us than we are to ourselves, who can then teach us to be nice to ourselves, right? Treat yourself like a friend. All right, we're going to get to, thank you, Stephanie. That was like, I think something that's on a lot of our minds, really, like how are we carving out lives as writers? And I know that we had one other question we were talking about as a group um, that we kind of wanted to bring to you um, that I'm going to ask you uh, before I get to the questions right now that are, are popping up in the Q&A. And, um, oh, where'd it go? I'm going to bring it up. I had it. Boop, 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 boop. This is, the, I am the queen of 30,000 tabs open on my computer at one time, by the way. Um, so this question is about money and budgeting, and it's kind of related to what you were talking about. But how can writers, aside from selling books, make a business of being a writer? Is it newsletters, workshops, et cetera? What can writers and early career authors like uh, any of us do to make their passion and purpose into a lucrative career? Yes. No pressure. Answer that question for us, please. We all need oh, to make I money. Got it. This is fun for me. To succeed as a writer today, you have to be entrepreneurial. 
you don't have a choice. You have to think like a business person because that's how you're going to sell books. You have, you're going to have to do a lot of the marketing promotion. So just, just accept that you're going to have to be an entrepreneur. That entrepreneur mindset is also how you're going to bring in income. So I don't make the majority of my income as a writer, even though I've written five books. Um, I make my income as a teacher and as a book coach, and I've grown that business over time. And how I did that was by asking myself, what do people always come to me for advice about? There's something that you do really well, and that's why people come to you. Um, I'm a really good listener. <laughs> so at the beginning, my book coaching business was very much like amateur psychotherapy. Like people just wanted to talk about how hard it was to be a writer. And I was like, okay, you can pay me every month and I'll listen to you talk about that. But I thought this isn't working. I'm also from a family. If my mother's a therapist, my sister's a therapist. It's in our genes. Then I thought, no, no, no. The thing that I'm really good at is that I understand how the book publishing industry works. So increasingly, I've been going in that direction that I, you know, help writers with nonfiction book proposals, which are very hard to write because how do you see what a nonfiction book proposal looks like? You, you can't see one. You can just go to the bookstore and buy the book, but you don't know how, what that looked like when it sold. So I specialize in nonfiction book proposals. I connect with literary agents so I can match make between writers and literary agents. Um, so I've carved a niche for myself as the book coach who is one, a working writer herself. I have a track record of that. And two, that I, my clients sell books. They, my clients get book deals. So I understand how the book publishing industry works. But if you are, you know, if memoir is really your beat. For a while, I, I was totally on a memoir kick and I taught a lot of memoir writing workshops and like leading a group. This is a very special skill. Leading a group of memoirists together. It's a very... A lot of them are writing about sensitive topics that really takes a certain personality and skill. Maybe that's your beat. Maybe you're a guru of plot structure, like Emily Stone, who has taught for the resort before and is teaching again. She's my guru for plot structure. That's her thing. That's what she knows better than anybody else. She has read every book on plot structure that exists, and then she distills it down to her students. So figuring out what is it that you could teach better than anybody else? And what do people come to you for advice for and charge them money for that? Hmm. It's going to feel awkward at first and you're going to undercharge and then you're going to gain confidence and you're going to become an expert in that and you'll, you'll gain enough confidence to charge more money. Okay, Lee, what was the switch for you where it stopped feeling awkward? Was it just time? Was it doing it a lot? The charging money part? Yeah. Oh, people kept saying, that's so cheap. <laughs> and I was like, shit. That's not a comp, you know, like when someone says that to you, you're like, oh man, I'm really undercharging. Or people would be like, that's cheaper than therapy. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, this is wrong. This is wrong. So I just kept raising it. Um, and now I, I'm about to raise it again. It's, it's also like supply and demand. Like I have, I have, every day I'm turning people away over email. I have too much work on my plate and I'm turning people away. And so that's also like, I'm like, oh, I could raise it a little bit more. Um, so I'm always tweaking with it. And the other thing too, like, um, you know, like I'll still take on pro bono stuff. Like I'll still do stuff and not charge people if it's like the right fit. So I'm trying to find a balance between, you know, raising my rates, but also being able to do projects that I like really care about. And like someone, I, if I see someone I could really help them, I'm like, let's get on a call. Like I'll help you. I do, I do that when I can. That's great. That's like a good balance of both helping people and remembering you need to help yourself and you can't give away all their time for free. You yeah, need yeah. to eat. Yeah, for sure. Um, so. Uh, that's terrific. Thank you for answering that question. I'm going to jump into a couple of questions from our audience members. So our first question is, 
How do you maintain mental health and confidence? Speaking of being a therapist, how do you maintain mental health and confidence while engaging in the Twitter discourse, which sometimes feels so exhausting? Yeah, how do I do that? Um, it's, it's not easy. Um, I've taken breaks away from Twitter. I've deactivated Twitter. Um, I have now started during the pandemic um, taking a tech Sabbath and turning my phone and computer off from Friday night to Saturday night. That's super good for my mental health and my creativity. When I'm not like constantly distracted and pinged, I have deep thoughts and I'm allowed to be bored and I have creative ideas during that time. So that's really been healthy for me. I think I've been on the internet for so long, like I have learned lessons about when I want to step in it and when I want to step away. So I'm not someone who seeks controversy. I'm not a provocateur. Um, I don't engage in these kinds of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, I know how the game works. I know how to play it if I want to play it. I know what I could say that would get a lot of rage and attention. I know like how to poke the bear and I don't, that's not how I want to spend my time online. I really want to spend my time online, like making real friendships and making jokes. I enjoy making jokes on Twitter. And so I do a lot of eavesdropping and a lot of observing, but I don't, I don't jump in the fray. And something that's like really sad to me is just watching the bullying happen, just watching the pylons happen between, you know, someone with a few followers who says something mean and then a writer with tens of thousands of followers jumping on them. And it's like, okay, who has the power here? You know, you have to let, you have to let the, the trolls roll off your back. Um, that's not an expression. <laughs> Don't feed the trolls. Don't feed the trolls and let, um, let the mean comments roll off your back. Don't sweat them. I'm sorry. Just, I'm going to have to put that in the chat. It was let the troll, let the trolls roll off your back. So, Is that, no. Something like that. Da, okay. <laughs> All right. Don't worry. We will share. We'll put it in I'm an upcoming newsletter so you don't forget. Now. <laughs> it's like let a the trolls. If anyone out there is an illustrator, I know we have plenty of writers in, it, in the resort who are writers and illustrators. Please draw a picture of a bunch of trolls on Lee Stein's back. Just rolling off and, and we'll share it with Lee and our community. Good. I think it'd be great. Okay. The other thing is like, the other thing is sometimes people will tag you in things that's that you'd rather not have seen. Do you know what I mean? Like, be careful when you tag someone. Like, if you want to shit talk a book, I hope you're not going to shit talk a book in public, but it's like, don't tag the author. Do you know what I mean? Like, and sometimes people tag me and stuff on Instagram where it's like, they're, it's like they're workshopping my book. And I'm like, I don't need your feedback. <laughs> like, the book is written. Like, you don't have to tag me. You can tell your friends what you didn't like about it, but there's no reason to tag me into that. I remain amazed that this needs to get said over and over because it does. Like, don't tag the author if you're saying shit about their book. What good is going to come of that? What is the point of doing that? Right. It's really not. Okay. It's just a step beyond. So don't do that, folks. I don't, no one here is going to do that, no but don't do that. do that. All right. We have, we have another question here. We're getting close to the end of our hour. I did put the um, links for the Astoria Bookshop uh, to buy What to Miss When there in the chat and you'll get a signed book plate in the mail from Lee if you get that from the Astoria Bookshop and email her the receipts, uh, copy of the a picture of the receipts and while you're at it, I put the link to buy self-care from the Astoria Bookshop too because why not? And um, as you answer this next question, Lee, I'm going to put Lee's uh, website again in the chat as well as information about the resort and the link to join our free online community if you're interested to find out about more stuff like this in our classes and everything else. So our, uh, our next question here for you is, Lee, what are your thoughts 
on the sort of schism between literary poetry and insta poetry and how what do you think it is about what to what to miss when that allows it to cross that divide very good question well that's how that's how i praise if it crosses that line so I guess, I mean, I came up in the literary poetry community and my mentor in my 20s was a poet with an MFA and he turned me on to a lot of books and a lot of poets that really shaped um, shaped my writing. And so that's the poetry community that I came of age in. But I was always writing kind of irreverent, funny, surreal poems. Um, and I've always... I've always bristled at the idea that poetry is some obscure language for some elite class of people and you have to have like the code breaker in order to to read poetry. I, I like poetry that like the first time you read a poem, like you get something out of it. And the second time you read the poem, you get something even more. And the third time you get even more. So like I want it to be like an entry point. So um, I think this is something Sarah, my editor, and I talked about early on that my poetry is like written in an accessible way. I would like to be someone's gateway drug to poetry. Um, it's always a huge compliment to me at, at readings when I read poetry and someone comes up to me after and like whispers to me, I don't like poetry, but I liked your poetry. I had, uh, someone on Twitter or someone on Instagram said, this is the first poetry collection they've read all the way through since Shel Silverstein. I love shit like this. So the, the, tw- the, the, the literary MFA world looks down on Rupi Carr and these Insta poets because it's, it's so accessible and it's so, it's, it's. What's another word you could even use for it? It's digestible. Um, it's unpretentious. But there's a huge market for this. And like when I think about myself as a teenage girl, like if she was going to Barnes and Noble today, like all the poetry that she could get exposed to at Barnes and Noble, I think that's exciting. And just because someone likes one poet doesn't mean that they are going to like the other. So I think there's room for everybody at the table. I don't think we have to fight over scraps. I think the more obscure poets could learn a lot from the Insta poets about how to market their work, because what is the point of writing something if only six people in the world understand it? That's not the kind of stuff that I want to be putting out there. Um, so, and maybe, and maybe the Insta poets could learn some depth from the MFA poets. I don't know. We need a, we need a, like a, what, what do we need? We need like a conference or something. We need to bring them together. Oh, I know, Lee. Why don't you start an organization that meets as a conference and a Facebook group? Yes, I'm going to start a Facebook group of 40,000 poets and then a conference. Okay. And if anyone doesn't know that reference, please look up BinderCon and Lee's connection to it. Um, Amazing. Listen, uh, we've had such a lively chat here. Please scroll back, guys, and check out the various links I put there. And and I want to remind everyone that I do want an illustration of trolls rolling off of Lee's back. I'm serious about that. Get that to me. That would be amazing. Um, I'm going to put you on a, just slightly on the spot, just as we end here, Lee. Sorry, didn't warn you, but I'm going to do it. I think you can handle it. You've proven yourself in this hour. Um, I'm so excited that Rasher and Stephanie and Sarita are here. They've been like such amazing rocks in the resort community. They have brought so much to me over the past year. Um, Our check-ins, I feel, do as much for me as they do for anybody. Um, Just like having those other writers who are working on things, even through a Zoom screen. Um, So I just want to thank them all for being here. And because you have taught for us and you're kind of one of our mentors in the resort community, I wonder if you have any I don't know, parting words of wisdom as we go off into the night, um, out of our Zoom rooms, into our room rooms, 
to Raysher and Stephanie, Sarita, the entire resort community and everyone out here in the attendance. What can you leave us with, Lee? I mean, I think like everyone who's here tonight is like light years beyond the people who aren't here tonight. <laughs> like these are the people that show up. Um, a lot of people say they're going to show up and they don't show up. You all showed up tonight. We get a lot of advice about like building your platform, growing an audience. And it sounds like like it's just going to be like see a sea of thousands of strangers at your, at your, you know, at your big reading at BAM or something. But it's, it's really about these relationships. Like that I saw Razor's night. I haven't seen her in years. And I was like, oh my God, I remember everything about your memoir. Like I know exactly what it is. Um, so these connections that you're, you're strengthening tonight, that you're strengthening in your weekly meetups with each other, that you're going to, there's a seed of a connection tonight in the chat. You're going to follow up with someone. You're going to start following them on Twitter tomorrow morning. Um, this is the work of community building. You're doing it right now and, and you're doing it right. And I think actually it's hard to go to Zoom events right now. I know we have Zoom fatigue, but it's actually a great time to go to Zoom events and connect with people because it's not a huge crowd. Um, anyone that emails me, I put my email in the chat, like anyone that emails me, I'll respond to you, you know, like this is, this is what it is. It's just making those connections one at a time. And then soon you have like a, you have a whole map. Lee, that was beautiful. See, I knew you could handle me put on the spot. That was perfect. Um, thank you so much for being here tonight. I want to thank Lee Stein. Um, thank you to Rasher and Stephanie and Sarita and the entire resort community. A thank you to Story Bookshop, our bookseller, and thank you to the Brooklyn Book Festival. Definitely go online, check out the Brooklyn Book Festival and all the amazing um, events that are happening this week and in person this weekend. I know Lee's already been in the chat herself, and uh, and we've made a lot of great connections there this evening. So be well, everyone. Um, come see us in the resort. Hope to see everyone soon, and take good care. And that, dear friends, brings us to the end of our special live event episode of Cabana Chats with Lee Stein. You can find out more about Lee Stein at leestein.com. And you can find out more about our Cabana Club membership program inside our free resort community, which you can join at community.theresortlic.com. Our podcast editor is Craig Ely, and our music is by Pat Irwin. Special thanks to resort assistant Nadine Santoro. Transcripts are available for all of our Cabana Chats episodes inside of our free network. I'll see you there. And I'll see you here next time in the Cabana.